Good morning. Oh, man. A little, a little loud. <laughs> okay. That's a little hot. All right. Would you open with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah? It's really a blessing to see many of you, especially uh, Brother Hector, who came all the way from Patterson this morning. Wow. How many miles is that, Hector? 99. Wow. We thought we came far. Okay. I'm reading Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the last verse of chapter 1, and the first verse of chapter 2. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Lord, I pray right now that you would come and be with us. Let your presence fall upon us, Lord. I can't do this on my own. I can't open people's ears, Lord. I pray you would help us, Lord. Help us to hear it, to study it, to read it, to memorize it, but above all, to apply it. Lord, I pray that just like a hurricane warning that is being, when the people are told to evacuate, I pray, God, that we would pay attention to your word and give it heed this morning. In Jesus' name and all the people said, amen. I remember when the girls were young, I have three daughters, we went on a family vacation to Pinecrest Lake, which is like three hours east of here. It was our first camping vacation. No Marriott's, no Best Western, nothing like that. No hotel service. And I had borrowed my friend's pop-up trailer. His, his, it was a tent. And it had a little kitchenette inside. And we thought, ooh, this is fancy. So we get to the lake, and one of the first things I do is I take my middle daughter, Becky, and I put her on my shoulders, and we go out into the water. And as I'm going out into the water, I could feel the water getting higher. It went up to my neck. It rose to my neck. And I got Becky on my shoulders, and she's having a great time. But I started to get a little concerned. I thought, maybe I went out too far because there's nobody else around us. Everybody stayed down in the shallow end. I thought, uh-oh, okay. So that was good. We go out. We're out there. She's splashing water. And the ground felt soft and muddy. I thought, hmm, this is odd. It feels weird. And I remember we were, I was walking around, and then all of a sudden there was this sharp slope, and I lost my footing. And now, here I have my, my six-year-old daughter who doesn't know how to swim, and I go down. And as I'm down in the water, I, I couldn't breathe. I almost panicked. I, I'm thinking, oh, no, oh, no. And I knew I couldn't let Becky go. I knew I couldn't let her go. I had to hold on to her. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to bob up and down. So I started bobbing up and down so I could get, come up, breathe, and then 
you know, go back down. And then I'm, I'm, I'm panicking. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, so I'm swallowing water. I'm choking. Becky's having a wonderful time. We're going up and down, up and down. I'm breathing. And I'm, I'm like, I can't see because the water was dark. It's not like when you're in a pool. You can see the water was dark and muddy. And I'm like, and then finally, finally, I said, okay, that's it. I take Becky off of my shoulders. I turn around toward the shore. I put her on my back, and I start swimming back to shore. And as Becky held on, I'm praying, God, just help me get back. Help me get back. And finally, when I, when I felt the ground, I, could, I stood up. And I was never more grateful than to be on solid ground. And I was just so glad we made it back. And Becky was so excited. That was fun. Let's do it again, Pop. I've had a couple of near-death experiences, but this was the only one involving water. And that was the last time we went camping at Pinecrest Lake. Last time. Last week, we talked about Jonah, the backslidden prophet. Jonah was disobedient by running away from God. Have you ever heard the expression, you can run, but you can't hide? That expression was never more true than when you're describing somebody who is running away from God. Jonah had been thrown overboard. He was sinking to the bottom of the sea, and he was swallowed by a fish. And God is in hot pursuit, like when the cops are chasing a criminal and they have their lights and their sirens on. God is in hot pursuit. Here in chapter 2, Jonah is at the bottom of the ocean. Jonah is thinking that he, he is going to die. He is at death's door. He is broken. He is humbled. And he cries out to God, through prayer, from a strange place, the belly of a fish. He is having a near-death experience. And so he cries out to God, he prays, and realizes that he's in trouble. So he says, God, give me help. I, I need your help. And so this is what we're going to look at today. This morning, I want to preach on the subject, Jonah, the awakened prophet, not the backslidden prophet like last week. And there's three simple points. One, the miraculous power of God. Two, the miraculous deliverance of God. And three, the miraculous goodness of God. Let's look at the first one. The miraculous power of God. Turn to Jonah 1.4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Here we see that God caused this great wind to come up, and it started a violent storm. So this storm is supernatural. God is responsible for this. In verse 7, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they are casting lots, and... The Lord exposed who the guilty person was, Jonah. Verse 15. So 
So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Immediately, when they threw Jonah overboard, the sea stopped all its violent waves. In verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The Hebrew word here is fish, not whale. Sometimes people think, oh, Jonah got swallowed by a whale. The Hebrew here says a great fish, and in Matthew, we're going to look at this later, it says a great fish. So it's certain this is a fish, not a whale. And the word for a point is the word mana, means to number, count, or specially prepare. So the text makes it clear that Jonah was sovereignly swallowed by this fish. Even the fish obey God. God prepared this great fish to swallow Jonah. Look at uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Right here, did God cast Jonah into the sea? No. Who did? Technically, it was the sailors threw him overboard. But Jonah recognizes that God used the sailors to do his will. They were like his agents. And that's why Jonah says, you cast me into the, into the deep. Look at uh, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry ground. The, the fish put Jonah back onto the dry ground. Here, here again, we see that God is in command, and he commands the fish to do his will. Also, by the way, this is the first automatic, automatic ejection system. I had to say that. In chapter 4, verse 6, we see that now the Lord appointed a plant and, it, and made it to come up over Jonah. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So here again, we see the Lord appointing a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind. All these things are happening, but they're miraculous. Do storms happen? Yes, storms happen, but they don't rise and fall instantly. Do plants grow and sprout? Yes, they do, but they don't do it in one day. Do sharks devour people and then sustain them and then spew them out in three days? No, no. They do devour people, but they don't save them and keep them. And um, do uh, worms eat and destroy plants? Yes, but not overnight. So we see all of these things demonstrate the miraculous power of God. God uses creation and nature to accomplish his divine plan. That's wonderful news. And the Bible tells, right here in Jonah 1.9, if you go back, in Jonah 1.9 he says, And I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So God created the sea and the dry land. All these things respond to his every command. And what's interesting to me is that only in these 48 verses, there's all these miracles that are going on. This is miraculous. I mean, only in the Gospels do you see all 
this many miracles happening. There are so many miracles. And this is the miraculous power of God. God is sovereign over nature. And then two, God is sovereign over salvation. Jonah 2.9. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to who? The Lord. God is sovereign over salvation. What does sovereign mean? I looked it up. The dictionary says supreme authority or rule. That's what sovereign means. The supreme authority. So salvation is entirely God's work. You know, when Jonah preached his message, in the, it's in chapter 3, he preaches the next the message. In English, it's only in eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. But if you look at it in Hebrew, it's only in five words. The Ninevites, from the king down, everybody repented and turned from their sins and turned to God. And this miracle in itself is an act of grace. It's a miracle of grace. But God is in charge of salvation. God is sovereign over salvation. It's his work. Ephesians 1.4, you don't have to turn to it, but it says, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Since God chose those who would be saved, the, his choice was settled before the foundation of the world. So what does that mean? That we as believers cannot take credit for any aspect of our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, this, this first time I heard this was when I came to this church about 18 years ago. I had never heard that, that God chose us to, to be saved. Steve was preaching on something called election. And I was like, wow, this is, this is different. I never heard this before. Well, that's because we were uh, brought up Armenian, which means that you, you decide to follow Christ. It's your decision. And then as we studied this book, I, I had to come back again. I, I had to come, you know, I thought, this is different. This is different. What is this? And that's when I started learning about the doctrine that God chooses who will be saved. I never knew or read that. I had read it, but it never made sense. And I saw, oh, God is sovereign over salvation. Man is not sovereign, has no, God does the choosing, not man. Man responds to God's grace and to his Holy Spirit. And I thought, okay, I'm going to come back. I got to learn more about that. And I, I, I took notes. I had never, ever heard that. But if you look at the verses, like many are called, but few are chosen. It started to make sense. I, I didn't see that. And this is exactly what this verse said. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we can't take any credit. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Even faith is a gracious gift from God. Jesus said in John 6, 65, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. Even faith is a gift that God gives us so that we can believe and trust in him. Now, salvation is a wonderful thing. And you can put it into three tenses. 
I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. In uh, John 5, 24, I'll read it to you. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. You, the moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were passed from death and judgment unto eternal life and salvation. See, that's I have been saved, and then I am being saved. That's the present tense. God is still working on us. Philippians 2.12 says, Now that I have already obtained this or am already... Not that I... I'm sorry, not now. I have my glasses on. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it on my, make it my own because Jesus Christ had, has made me his own. 2.12 no, I'm reading three. I'm sorry. Chapter two. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I have been saved, and you've been passed from death unto life. I am being saved, and right now God is still working and saving you, and then I will be saved is in the future tense. There's going to come a day when we, when we die, then God is going to take us home, and that salvation will be complete. So do you understand? I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. That's how God is working in us. Therefore, salvation is God's work from beginning to end. And for God to take a lost hell-bent, poor sinner, and make him a new creation, that is a miracle. That is a wonderful blessing. What a mighty God we serve. We should be awed by all these miracles that God is doing. When somebody gets saved, it's a miracle. Turn to Acts with me. Acts 2, I mean, Acts 4, 23. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 4. Verse 23 and 24. This is when Peter and, and John were released from prison. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord is an expression to describe the total creative power and control of God over all his physical creation and the affairs of humanity. What is this saying? That God is in control, not the politicians. Can you say amen? Amen. God is in control. God is sovereign. In one of the miracles in Mark chapter 2, uh, where, when the paralytic, do you remember that story where the paralytic He's on a cot, and his four friends are carrying him, and they went to the house, and there was no way they can get in because there was no room, and they had to go on the roof. They broke the roof, and they lowered 
their paralytic friend down. What? Those are the kinds of friends you want. They, they broke the roof, lowered him, and Jesus said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Wow, power over disease. In John 6, when Jesus multiplied the bread, remember there was two breads and five fish? No, it's the other way around. Five loaves and two fish. And you know, in John 6, the Bible tells us there were 5,000, but it's talking about men. So if you think about it, there was probably twice as many as that. He fed them with five loaves of bread and two fish. That's a lot of people. What a miracle. Another miracle. God is sovereign over nature. In John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he, he called him out. Lazarus, come forth. Power over death. God is doing miraculous things here in the Bible. Power over death. In the Old Testament, when Moses uh, did the, the miracles of the ten plagues, that demonstrated miraculous power. Do you know why the ninth plague was the most powerful? Remember when, when the sun didn't shine? That's the most powerful of all those ten because in Egypt, the sun god, Ra, was their most powerful god. And this showed God's sovereignty and superiority over the Egyptian gods. That was a powerful miracle. There are thousands, I don't know, when you read the Bible, there are thousands of miracles in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the epistles. And all these miracles reveal the power of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is full of examples that reveal the miraculous power of God. How great thou art. Thousands of miracles. I had so many examples, and I said, no, that's too much. That's too much. That's no, no, no. He healed the, the leper. No, that's too much. No, no, no. The, he took the fish and uh, paid the shekel for the temple tax. No, that's too much. It, it is amazing when you read the Bible how many miracles he, are here. It reveals that God is great. The God is sovereign. And that's my point here. God is sovereign over nature, and God is sovereign over salvation. Don't turn to it. 1 Timothy 6.15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and dominion. Amen. God is sovereign. God is the supreme ruler. And the God of the Bible is the God of nature, the God of all miracles, who upholds all things by the word of his power. And to create something out of nothing, to save sinners and turn them into saints, to transform and command nature. That requires the miraculous power, not of man, but of an omnipotent, omniscient, omni, omnipresent God. Can you say amen? amen? So one, the miraculous power of God. Two, the miraculous deliverance of God. 
verse 17 of chapter 1 of Jonah chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah was thrown overboard by the sailors. And as he sinks to the bottom, there's a great fish there, and it swallows Jonah whole. The Bible says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. You know, a lot of people ask, how, how could Jonah live? How, how, what about the digestive juices inside the fish? How could he pray inside a fish? How could he breathe? What kind of fish could actually swallow a man whole? A shark? A whale? I looked it up. A, a, a great white shark can swallow a man whole. And there's been other fish that have swallowed men whole, and they've, they've found that out. But skeptics want scientific proof. They want to make scientifically, how could this actually happen? And many people don't believe that this actually happened. They believe it's an allegory or it's a, a parable. They don't believe that this actually occurred. You know, if you believe in the book of Jonah, you're rare. Because people don't believe the Bible. But I'm going to tell you, turn to Matthew 12. In the New Testament, the first book, Matthew 12, verse 39. I love it when I hear the sound of paper rustling. It's a wonderful sound. Matthew 12, 39. I'll, I'll start at 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right here. Jesus said, this is what happened. Jesus said, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So the truth is, it did happen. Does Jesus lie? No, the, he never can lie. That would make him a, a sinner. So it either happened or, or they're saying Jesus is a liar. And that's what many people teach today. You go to college, and you go to a secular college, they're going to teach, this, is, this never happened. This is not possible. This is the allegory. It's a parable. They dumb it down. But the Bible says, and Jesus himself said, it happened. They wanted a sign, but Jesus said, no sign is going to be given to you. We just heard, just five minutes ago, the miraculous power that God has to do miraculous things. And if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen regardless of the laws of nature. God reigns. We just sang that song, Our God Reigns. You know, it, it happened. I believe it. I believe the Bible. And I believe what God says. Then chapter 2 of uh, Jonah. Turn to chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Stop right there. Jonah hasn't prayed up until this point. 
He didn't pray when he went down to Joppa. He didn't pray when he needed to know what direction to go. He didn't pray when he got on the ship. And he didn't pray when the storm was going on at all. Even the captain had to come down and wake him up. Wake up. Pray. That's a rebuke when a lost person tells you to pray. And then look at the next verse. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In the belly of a fish. Let me tell you that this is a terrible place to to pray. A terrible place to pray. In the belly of a fish. What do you think it smelled like? Have you ever had fish? Have you ever cooked fish? Do you know what it smells like? It's strong. It's a strong smell. I I mostly take it outside. We usually barbecue it so that it doesn't smell up the house. Jonah is in this fish, and that probably smelled. And do you think there was lights on like this? What do you think it was? Think about it. It was dark. It was dark. Are any of you scared of the dark? I got up at 3.30 in the morning last night, and I turned all the lights on. I'm like, I can't, I, can't, I can't do this. I need light. And then there's another thing. I started thinking about this. Do you like being all confined in a small area, small, tiny area, space? There's a word for it, claustrophobic. Yes. Are you afraid of confined spaces? Oh, man, being inside that fish that probably smelled and all these digestive juices are going on all around him and there's, there's no light, it's dark. Oh, my goodness. Maybe, and then, not even all of them, only that. What about maybe, does anybody have a fear of drowning? I know, I, I, don't, I don't. Some people won't even get in the water. But the truth is, you can pray anytime, any place, anywhere. You know that? Even from the belly of a fish. Have you ever been on a plane and it's, all of a sudden it starts... What's the first thing you do? You see people's heads bow down. They're shooting up a prayer. I know they are. Yes. Have you ever, ever uh, been in a hospital bed before surgery? You, you pray because you don't know what's going to happen, especially after they put that anesthesia in you. And then, you know, you're just praying, God, let me wake up. What about if you're looking for a job, you're in the lobby. And right before you go in, they're call, you know they're going to come and call you. You shoot up prayer. So right in the lobby, right in your chair, you can pray. Um, have you ever driven during bad weather? Yeah, yeah. I prayed, but... You pray with your eyes open. God, get, help me get through this, this rainy weather, wind. There was a lot of wind last night. Did you see that? Oh my goodness. Yes, Corey Tenboom, famous woman, prayed in an area full of lice. Can you imagine thanking God for lice? Because the soldiers didn't want to go in there. The lice were running, they were rampant. And so the soldiers wouldn't go in there. And she and her, her, her group would go in there and pray. Praying in a place full of lice. You can pray anytime. You can pray anywhere. You can pray any place. That's what the power of prayer. Prayer brings you closer to God. 
There is no wrong time to pray. I have, I've, I've had to shoot up arrows, just like when I was swimming when we're, when we're at Pinecrest Lake, or even this morning before I had to get up, and as I'm walking down, I just shoot up an arrow. God, help me. Give me strength. Help me to remember. Renew my mind. This is, this is what is always the right time to pray. Always the right time to pray. If you have to think about it, it's, it's the right time. Prayer brings you closer to God. Look at verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. The ESV says, out of my distress, and he answered me. The NASB, my affliction. The New Life Translation, my great trouble. Jonah is in great trouble, and he cries out to God after running away from God, and God still listens and answers his prayer. Why did Jonah pray? Because of my affliction. What an amazing statement. We, when we pray to God, God answers and listens to our prayer. Out of the belly of Sheol, verse, verse uh, 2, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol is the Hebrew word for grave, or the place of the dead. Now, Jonah is not literally in the grave, but he's just describing his experience, what, what it was like. He was being inside this fish, and it was kind of a grave, a watery grave. And it's being used figuratively here for his near-death experience. So even uh, John MacArthur says that this is hyperbolic. What does that mean? It's exaggerated. You know, when Jesus says, cut off your arm so you don't sin, or pluck out your eye, almost did right there. <laughs> it's exaggeration to, to make a point. Okay, and, and John MacArthur says he, he's using this to denote a catastrophic condition near death. Jonah felt like he was dying. He's basically saying, I'm at the end of my rope. I have no hope. I can't save myself. I'm helpless. Have you ever been like that? When you feel like there's no hope, you're afflicted? Have you ever felt hopeless? You're in distress? You know what the word distress mean? I looked it up. I thought it was like stress. To cause anxiety or suffering. It's a condition of being in eminent assistance. Distress. Have you ever heard of that expression? A damsel in distress. And then the gentleman goes and helps. Or a boat that's in distress. And what do they do? They send out SOS. That's when you're in distress. Hasn't there been times in your life when things are hopeless and you're in distress? You can call out and you can cry out to God to help you. God is there. And I want you to look at these next few verses. Jonah recognizes what God is doing. Jonah sees what he's done. Look at verse 3. And I want you to imagine these verses. Really give it a picture Think about what he is saying. Try to see him drowning. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and flood surrounded me. All the waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away. Another verse says, banished for, from your sight. Yet I look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take 
my life. And the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me. R.C. Sproul said these are the gates of hell that Jonah's feeling. Yet you brought my life from the pit. Oh, oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away. In other words, when I was dying, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and into your holy temple. Jonah recognizes that God cast him into the heart of the sea. And through prayer, God opens our eyes. Jonah can see clearly now. He's surrounded by all these waters. These weeds are wrapped around him. He's there in the dark. He is at death's door. And he's in despair. I am fainting away. I'm dying. And he can't see any way out of his trouble. He is descending to his death. And yet he looked to God and he stopped running and he started reflecting on his life. And he prayed to God. He says in verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and the holy temple. Jonah had all but given up hope. He turned to the Lord for help. Jonah is spiritually awakened right here. And my prayer came to your holy temple. Usually prayer by the Jewish people was offered in the courts of the temple of uh, Jerusalem. But Jonah knew he could pray to God anywhere because God can hear your prayer anywhere and he can meet the needs of his people wherever they are. Right here, Jonah repents. Now, there's a lot of confusion about that word, repents. What does that mean? Repent is metanoia, a change of mind that results in a change of life. Jonah did. He changed his mind. And he says in verse 9, I will sacrifice to you. I have, what I have vowed, I will pay. Notice that God didn't change his mind. Jonah changed his mind. Jonah is spiritually awakened. It's a change of direction. You're going that way, and all of a sudden you turn this way. And what I realized as I studied this is that repentance requires change. Repentance requires change. A lot of times I think we raise our children and and they believe, okay, I, I believe in Jesus. And that's it. There's no repentance. And then they grow up, leave the church, go to college, and fall away. Why? Because repentance requires change metanoia and that's why we have that problem and the same is true with you if you turn your life to God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ God will miraculously save you from eternal death and judgment why is Jonah in this situation let's 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 kind of bring this summarize a little why is Jonah here why is he in this place because he rebelled and he ran away from God he got thrown overboard and he was recovered by a fish he's in the depths of despair literally in the depths of despair and he recognizes that he is at death's door now he reflects upon his situation and he repents at 3 30 in the morning I told you I woke up at 3 30 and all of a sudden the song came to my head and, it was, and then I'm thinking about Jonah. I've been thinking about Jonah for the last month. 
Anyway, I woke up and I said, okay, God, I'm going to get up. What do you want me to do? And he says, give me, he started thinking about Jonah, about this song. And so I changed the words a little bit, but I want you to listen to it. It's from the song that we sang last week. Uh, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not the Lord was crucified. It's at Calvary. I ran from the Lord because of pride, caring not about the souls that died. Help me, God, now I make my plea at the bottom of the sea. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burden so found liberty at the bottom of the sea. I was such in great despair, desperately seeking for fresh air. There I confessed and now agree at the bottom of the sea. I thought, wow. I've never, ever, ever done that. I just want you to know. Never, ever, first time. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to tell them when I, when I got up and wrote. So Jonah is in this situation because he's running from God. And he cries out to God from the bottom of the sea in this belly of a fish. And he found liberty. God comes. Look at verse, um, well, first we have to do verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Steadfast love here in, in Hebrew is the, the uh, word chesed, which is mercy. Remember what we said last week? Mercy is something I do deserve, but I don't receive. Remember that? It's mercy. I do deserve judgment, but I don't receive it. So Jonah is saying that those who have their faith in idols forsake God's mercy. There are two kinds of people in the world, idolaters and worshipers. What is an idol? An idol is anything that is more important than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination. Anything you seek to give yourself that only God can give you. Anything can be an idol. But idols compare, pale in comparison to God. Idols are created. God is the creator. In ancient times, the whole world was involved in idol sacrifice or worship, idol worship. Uh, there's a movie called Apocalypse, and you, in that movie you see a lot of uh, sacrifice being given. And, and that Mayan, or that guy, he's running from these guys that are chasing him. Some even sacrifice children to the pagan idols. But God is not created. The Bible says that God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. He made all things, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So idols are created, God is the creator. The great theologian John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. Man takes good things like a successful career, love, material things, even family and children, and turns them into idols. If you put your hope in anything less than Jesus Christ, then you will not receive God's grace. You, fulfill, you forfeit God's grace. What have you given your heart to? What is the center of your life? That is your idol. Is it God? And Jonah is a great example of God's justice and mercy. 
You know, Jonah's problem wasn't his feet that was making him run away from God. Jonah's problem was his heart, that his heart was far from God, not his feet. Jonah realized he messed up. And I just wanted to ask you, what do you do when you mess up? Do you try to cover it up or do you cry out to God? And then in verse 9, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See the effectiveness of prayer? Prayer causes us to be grateful and give thanks. It makes us say, thank you, Lord. You want to do, do what God tells you to do. And this is what Jonah does. He makes a vow. He says, I'm going to do what you told me to do, Lord. I'm going to go preach to the Ninevites. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then, so after three days, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to Jonah, and it vomited Jonah onto the ground, dry, dry land. The fish spits Jonah out after three days and three nights. Jonah is in this watery death grave, and he's miraculously delivered. So God is the source of salvation and deliverance. That's what God does. God saved the sailors in chapter 1. God saved Jonah in chapter 2. He's going to save the Ninevites in chapter 3. God saves and salvation belongs to the Lord. Even when Jonah resisted God's will, God brought his life out of the pit and put him on dry land. You know what I see from this? Is that sometimes God allows us to go through storms to bring us to himself. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom. And I know several people that have had to hit some difficult times, crises, in order for God to turn their lives around. God works in mysterious ways. But God has to do it. We can't. The hardest thing to believe is not that a giant fish swallowed Jonah and kept him in there for three days and three nights. The hardest thing for me is to believe that God pursued Jonah and chased him and delivered him. That, to me, is what's hard to believe. I want you to notice something. God allows us to endure pain and suffering for our eternal good. What do you mean by that? God sometimes uses suffering to bring us to him. God used the suffering of three days and three nights in the belly of a fish for Jonah's eternal good. So God allowed Jonah to suffer in order to bring him to the end of himself. And subsequently, Jonah realized his dependence on God and cried out to God for deliverance. See how God works? He created this situation, and then Jonah had to realize, I have nowhere else to go. And that's sometimes what we do. We wait till the last, and then we realize, oh, I'm going to cry out to God. In 1981, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a bestseller called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the reason Rabbi Kushner wrote this book was because his 14-year-old son had an incurable disease, and he, he, and he died. Why do bad things happen to good people, Rabbi Kushner wrote. And do you know what his answer was in that book, that bestseller? His answer was that God does his best and is with us during times of suffering, but he is not able to fully prevent it. And you know what that does? That denies God's omnipotence. And I'm going to ask you the question, why do bad things happen to good people? 
The answer is because we live in a fallen world and there are no good people. That's the reason. I could have wrote a book. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Esther, Paul, Peter, even Jesus himself suffered and experienced pain and trials in their lives. Is that right? Yes. God allows us to go through these sufferings for our eternal good. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, that's key right there, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Did you catch that? He learned. And if Jesus, our Lord and Savior, had to learn suffering, what does that say about us? There were consequences for Jonah's disobedience. He was in the belly of a big, smelly, dark fish for three days and three nights. His skin was probably bleached white from the digestive juices inside that fish. His testimony was ruined because of his disobedience. But when Jonah repented and got right with God, the Lord forgave him and restored him. I praise God that he is always ready to forgive his children when we are sinful or backslidden or disobedient. God will restore you. All he asks is that we do what it says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So one, the miraculous power of God. Two, the miraculous deliverance of God. And three, the miraculous goodness of God. Did you notice how God goes out of his way to chase Jonah? Did you notice that? God is in hot pursuit, like when cops are chasing the criminals with the lights and sirens on. I've been in a police car when we're chasing a robber who just robbed Bank of Eleven, and the sirens are on, and it's a code three, and you're running down the freeway. You're chasing. You're in hot pursuit. You have the helicopters going above you. Everybody's talking on the phone. Do you got him? Do you got him? I'm following. I'm following. It's hot pursuit. God demonstrates his amazing, eternal, unconditional love for his children. God is good. And you're supposed to say all the time. God is doing this. Why? God is disciplining Jonah. He's teaching him a lesson. Why do you think God sent the wind the storm, the, the ruling of the casting lots, preparing the sailors, preparing the fish, sent the plant, the worm, the scorching east wind. Why? Because being inside that giant fish, are you listening? Being inside that giant fish wasn't a great place to live, but it was a great place to learn. I'm going to say it one more time. Being inside that giant fish was not a great place to live, but it was a great place to learn. Sometimes we go through trials and storms so we can learn. And even when Jonah was disobedient to the word, he, he was going in the downward tra trajectory, he was a deplorable witness, God delivered him. He reveals his miraculous power over nature and creation. And in the next chapter, chapter 3, he recommissions Jonah. Why? Why did God go through all of this trouble? Because of his miraculous goodness. That is God. He is good. 
Isn't it wonderful to know that God doesn't let his children go? That is reassuring to me. Jonah was a disobedient prophet, but God was relentless. He was relentless. He pursued him. We, you know what I realized? We don't pursue God. God pursues us. You may backslide. You may wander away, but God will pursue you if you are truly a child of God. If you are born again, God will pursue you. God will never let you go. Never let you go. Romans 8, 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation, including fish, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means God is going to chase you whenever you try to run away because of the miraculous goodness of God. God is good. One more time. God is good. There was a man named Robert Robertson, and he had a rough life. His father died when he was five years old, and his mother was unable con to control him. So, so she sent him to London to learn how to cut hair, become a barber. But what he learned instead was how to drink and, and associate with gang members. So when he was 17, he went to an evangelistic meeting to hear a preacher named George Whitfield. George Whitfield is one of the history's greatest preachers with an, a voice that was part foghorn and part violin. And that night he preached from Matthew 3, 7 that says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And bursting into tears, Whitfield exclaimed, oh, my hearers, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. Robert believed that Whitfield was preaching directly to him. And this preacher's words haunted him for three years until he finally gave his heart to God on December 10, 1755. And he wrote, he found full and free forgiveness in the precious blood of Christ. Robert soon entered the ministry and three years later, at the age of 23, he wrote a hymn for his sermon. It was a prayer that said the Holy Spirit would flood our hearts with streams of mercy, enabling us to sing God's praise. Come thou fount of every blessing has been a favorite of the church since then. He was ordained and became a pastor in 1759. The church grew from 34 people to over 800 people. The story goes that while he was going through a difficult period in his life, he decided to take a ride on a stagecoach. And a young lady that was in the stagecoach asked him what did he think about the, the song she was humming. With tears coming from his eyes, down his cheeks, he said, I am the man who wrote that song. I'd give anything to experience a peace 
that I had when I knew when I wrote that song and the joy. Somewhat surprised, she assured him that those streams of mercy still flowed. Mr. Robinson was deeply touched and turned his wandering heart back to the Lord and back to preaching. He preached his last sermon on June 6, 1790, and he died on June 9, 1990, three days later. But I love that stanza. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Have you blown it? We all have sinned. Maybe you're not a Christian and haven't trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God will forgive you of your sins. The people of Nineveh turned and repented. You must repent and believe that the Lord Jesus died on the cross to save you. You can turn to God today by faith. Just pray with me. Lord, please forgive me of my sinful ways. Be merciful to me, Lord, a sinner. I commit my life to you. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, amen.